This interview was brought to you by the University of Washington's Center for Leadership in Athletics, a wing of the College of Education. The center, in partnership with the Washington Interscholastic Activities Association, is hosting a special event on January 27th at noon, Women as Culture Builders. If you're listening to today's interview, you're either a woman leader in sport or an ally of women in sport, so we'd love to have you join us for this virtual event. To learn more and for registration, visit the center's website at uwcla.uw.edu. We hope to see you there. Okay, we're back with Sam Moore, Director of Sports Science and Assistant Strength and Conditioning Coach at NC State University. Sam specializes in designing strength and conditioning programs specifically around the needs of female athletes. And when we wrapped up last week, Sam shared her quote to help us begin to re-examine traditional and still prevalent models of sport training. Sam, share with us what you mean when you say periodization is a scam. I think in the context of the conversation, when I said it a few weeks ago, I meant that traditional periodization is not working, right? It's, it's created on research with male athletes and it isn't sensitive to the hormonal landscape of our female athletes. With that, the hormonal landscape of our female athletes is different per the individual. So how can we create this traditional periodization model that takes goals of training and divides it into blocks of time when those goals aren't necessarily indicative of that block of time? And that's what I mean when I say periodization is a scam. So I believe that periodization should be developed for the individual. Um, I've got a few different examples of the benefit of of athletes and a hormonally sensitive periodization model. But I think one of the biggest examples was a return to play ACL athlete that I had when I first got to NC State. And she had gotten an ACL reconstruction, I believe in November. And so when I arrived beginning of January, she was ready to start lifting and hypertrophy was the goal. She had atrophied a considerable amount, which is common. And so we lifted four times a week um, in the traditional muscular endurance and the muscular hypertrophy setting. And from the beginning of January until mid-March, when we left for spring break and then never came back, um, her between-limb deficit of force output had stayed the same. She was at a 40% deficit. And so I went into quarantine racking my brain of we're lifting four days a week. We're doing all of this single leg work. Um, her athletic trainer's doing single leg work. I don't understand why this isn't working. If there's a lack of strength and a lack of hypertrophy, it's on me, the strength and conditioning coach, right? And so I started to look more into it. And I asked her if she would be comfortable sending me her birth control prescription. And so when I started to look into her birth control prescription, I realized that the hormonal landscape of that was being created by her birth control wasn't being aided by the periodization scheme that I had been taught that would create hypertrophy. It was doing more damage than good. So when she came back in May, we had six weeks to train before we were going to start team, team training and soccer work. And she was at a, at a 40% deficit still. So she had maintained her deficit through her couple months at home. And so what we did is I created a periodization scheme based on the hormonal dosages of her birth control. 
and we modulated the mTOR stress that was created in the weight room. We went down to only two lifts per week, but we increased the stress, the time under tension while in the weight room. And then we also increased her rest days. And so moving from a four lift per week model to a two lift per week model with more rest days um, and then increased time under tension um, to target that mTOR system while using the sugar pill week or the inactive pill week, not as a true follicular phase menstruation, but as a luteal phase high hormone week, we were able to decrease her deficit from 40% to 7% within six weeks. Okay, so a little bit of um, terminology for the folks who don't have backgrounds in extra exercise science. So explain the pathways and what you mean when you when you refer to mTOR. Right. So the mTOR pathway is a the metabolic pathway that we travel through to develop strength increases, force increases, and hypertrophy gains. So um, it can be inhibited at some points in a cycle, specifically when progesterone is high. Um, for this specific athlete, she had a monophasic birth control. So she was given the highest dosage of synthetic progestin for three weeks. And that's something that's really important to consider when you're prescribing training programs. And then again, for the folks who aren't familiar with um, the terminology, luteal phase, follicular phase, help just give kind of a general understanding of that hormonal landscape. The follicular phase is the first half of the menstrual cycle, and it begins on day one of your period. It's characterized by the highest rise in estrogen leading up to ovulation. It's also characterized by the highest rise of testosterone leading up to ovulation. When ovulation happens, the egg is released. That causes a significant downfall of estrogen and testosterone. Um, and it also signals the second half of the phase, which is the luteal phase. The luteal phase is then characterized by this crossing of estrogen going down, progesterone going up. Um, progesterone hits its highest peak in the luteal phase, and estrogen also rises to have a much lower peak in the luteal phase, both of which then down plummet, and that's what causes the shedding of the lining and finds us back at day one of the follicular phase and day one of the period. Okay, and so for the listeners, um, and I know we have some male coaches, male leaders, just hang with us here. Just stay with us because we're going to get back to the performance part of this, but just a little bit of background there. So zooming out on why this is so important for the folks who don't have a background in this and just want to understand why does this matter if I'm coaching female athletes? It matters because in the first two weeks, athletes are in an anabolic state. And then the second two weeks that Sam referred to, athletes then shift into a catabolic state. So Sam, what is like, what does that mean when you're looking at this through the lens of a strength and conditioning coach that shift from anabolic to catabolic? Right. So with progesterone creating that catabolic environment, it makes it far more difficult for us to gain hypertrophy. So just at default, we can be breaking down in muscle. Um, but Similar to that, estrogen creates that anabolic environment. So shifting focuses when estrogen is present in high quantities to muscular hypertrophy through that mTOR system versus possibly aerobic development or, or a different capacity that can be developed through a different metabolic system when progesterone is present is really, really helpful because we can see through physiologic research that progesterone down regulates that mTOR system. So we're just, we don't have the same capacity to gain muscle. And for so long, this has been understood as we're, we're just diminished. Women are just diminished in their capacity to build muscle. 
when put through a typical progressively overloaded resistance training system. However, that's because for two of those weeks or, you know, half of the cycle, depending on how long the menstrual cycle is, we, we're not in a place to, to favorably build muscle. So we're essentially kind of doing more damage to those gains that were done in the first few weeks of the cycle. You've said that training is different than performance and that training designed around the needs of women's physiology is about, these are your words, maximizing that hormonal landscape. So speak more to that. Right. So I think that's, that's a great question and it goes along with what we're just discussing. So training, we're optimizing what's available to us. And that looks different in the luteal versus follicular phases. So understanding that the purpose of training is to intentionally and carefully overload specific systems in ways that pertain to the key performance indicators of the sport so that we can allow for greater development. Um, you have to know what the KPIs are of your sport and of your athletes specifically, and then essentially divvy them up into the optimal phases for development. And that's the framework that I use when I train my, my women athletes here at NC State. So we have to know what is the hormonal landscape. And with that, it matters if an athlete's on a birth control or not on a birth control, right? Because we're not going to treat the period the same as we would treat the inactive pill week of a birth control. And we'll, we'll get into that a bit later. But when you know what the hormonal landscape is, you can understand the physiology and the effects of that hormonal landscape. And then you can essentially just plug and play. So with that landscape, what's going to be the most beneficial type of training? What can we maximize the most significantly in that phase based on what's available to us? And then where do we need to, to maximize? What is this athlete's capacity? Where are they diminished? What do they need to develop? Um, and then we can just plug and play into the different parts of the cycle. Let's give a, a couple of sport examples to illustrate your point here. Let's start with one of the sports you specialize in at NC State. Well, actually, both of these are sports you specialize in. But let's give our power sport example, volleyball. Let's start with that. Um, and then we'll compare that to a more an, a, an aerobic and anaerobic capacity sport. So how do you maximize the hormonal landscape for a volleyball athlete specifically? Right. So when we look at volleyball, some of the key performance indicators are vertical jumps, right? We want to have, we want to be able to jump unilaterally and bilaterally, and that takes a high level of power. And injury-wise, the most common mechanism of injury in volleyball would be landing, right? No one gets hurt when they jump, they get hurt when they land. So when we look at that, we can split that into two capacities. There's a strength and a power that's required to be able to jump and land. But there's also the technique and the range of motion to be able to withstand that. So if we're going to split this up into two, into the two phases, I go that in the follicular phase, we're going to push our strength work. We're going to push our power work. That's when we're going to do some of our highest intensities. We're going to really accrue volume in that phase. We might hit a training max in that phase. And then when we move to the luteal phase, we're going to work on our mechanics. So we might do some more mechanically demanding, but lower intensity movements, right? So instead of just a deadlift, we might do a kettlebell swing, or instead of a high max, you know, training max power clean, we might do a kettlebell swing. Um, we can also do landing mechanics in that phase. So that's something that's really common is if we can teach our women to maximally 
move and functionally move and safely move when they're quote unquote not in their optimized, they're in a diminished state, their transfer of skill is much better from the luteal phase than we used to think that it is. And so that's really important. So we can work on technique work and really perfecting that technique in the luteal phase of landing on one leg, on two legs, work on that range of motion, work on that aerobic capacity to do it again and again. And then when we move to the follicular phase, that's when we're really going to push our force output. Okay, let's contrast that with a sport that demands a high level of both aerobic and anaerobic capacity, soccer. Soccer is a great example because a lot of times when we look at volleyball, right, it's such an anaerobic sport that it's hard to understand the aerobic capacities of a volleyball athlete. But with soccer, it's really evident. So we can see that they have to be able to do high-speed movements. They have to be able to be really strong and forceful and, and boot a ball down the field. They have to get up and sprint and, and be quick and powerful, but they also have to be, do, be able to do it for 90 minutes. And so we can take those anaerobic capacities and develop them in the follicular phase, the strength, the power that we just talked about, but we can also take the aerobic capacities and develop those in the luteal phase. So we can see that that running economy is improved in the luteal phase at an aerobic level. So if we're going to be doing conditioning, we might do, you know, flying 10s or flying 20s and work on high speed technique and high speed sprinting in the follicular phase, but then, and, and very minimal volume to be able to work at that high of an intensity. And then in the luteal phase, we would bring the intensity far down, but we would accrue some volume because we know that our aerobic running economy is better in that phase. What advice do you have for um, women athletes who are training themselves? I think the first thing is creating an environment of self-awareness. So as female athletes, we are taught for so long, as athletes of any gender, we're taught that we have to push ourselves to the max anytime we train, right? If, if you're not willing to do something, there's someone else out there that is, and, and extra reps, and extra this, and extra that, and that's great. And we don't want to take away that tenacious go-getter attitude that makes elite athletes elite, right? But we have to educate our women on what's happening so that they can understand and then reframe the barometer of success of achievement and what they're developing in each phase. So I think one, creating that self-awareness, how do I feel today? And it doesn't matter if we think it's related to our cycle or related to our birth control or related to our partner or school or our kids how do I feel today? What's my stress level like today? How does my body feel today? What does it feel like when I'm drinking my morning coffee? How hard was it for me to get out of bed? And then based on the answers to those questions, have some kind of a predetermined flow chart of what you need to train. So understanding the outcomes of your training. What, why are you training? What do you need to do? What do you need to improve in your training? And then what kind of days would, would lend themselves better to that type of training? So if you do feel super stressed, what kind of training is going to still check the box of a key performance indicator, what you need to develop, but what might even help make you feel better that day, right? Because we're training the holistic athlete, holistic with a W, you are a whole person. And so, you know, I think that that really matters. But if let's say you wake up and you feel absolutely great, you woke up 15 minutes before your alarm, ready to go, you're hydrated, um, you're recovered, 
what are the KPIs that lend itself to that kind of day? What's the maximal training that you need to get done and you feel equipped and ready for? So the environment of self-awareness and then a flow chart of what are the boxes that you need to check and what answers to those self-aware questions would lend themselves to those boxes. Mm-hmm. And for, for women athletes, I think knowing that, you know, when it comes to that awareness, that self-awareness of how are we feeling, it's, it's physical, it's psychological and emotional. All three of those things are critical pieces of feedback that are telling us what's going on in our life and also where are where we are in that hormonal landscape. Yes, I could not agree more. That's one of the most common things that I have to reinforce with my athletes, especially in their daily questionnaires. Put it all in there. Let's collect it all. And then let's see if we can make some sense of what we see. Okay, we're going to pivot to discuss a common myth that I think you and I can both safely say has been incredibly frustrating for both of us as we've coached female athletes. And you touched on this just a few moments ago, the myth that birth control can be utilized as a treatment for amenorrhea or menstrual dysfunction. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with um, the concepts of amenorrhea or menstrual dysfunction, we're talking about a female athlete having either an irregular menstrual cycle or their cycle ceasing altogether. And when we get into this topic, I like to start by saying for our male coaches and leaders out there first, thank you for being part of this conversation, because if you're here engaging in this conversation, that means that you're an ally for female athletes. And second, we want to recognize that this conversation may be a little uncomfortable for some people. We want to recognize that, honor that, and do what we can to increase that level of comfort. I always say when I give talks on this topic, it's just biology. And our intention is to help all coaches feel better prepared to support female athletes. And a critical part of supporting female athletes begins with understanding a few things. One, how common menstrual dysfunction and amenorrhea is in female athletes, that the short and long-term health and performance impacts are profound that some of the common causes are low energy availability, which that can take shape either through insufficient calorie intake, excessive training, or a combination of the two. And then of course it can also be caused by low ferritin levels, which is the stored form of iron. And lastly, we want everyone to know that this is a health challenge that is far too often misunderstood in the medical community. And it can be quite challenging for female athletes to find the care that they need. So Sam, recognizing that this subject deserves far more time than we have on our podcast today, um, please share with us how the changing hormonal landscape that's associated with menstrual cycle irregularity impairs athlete health and performance. This is, it's a heavy subject. I think you did a good job of, of prefacing it. Um, and, and packaging it in the way that we want to dive into it today. But you're absolutely right. The, the social and, and cultural ideas and understanding around it are often misunderstood. And the commonality of menstrual dysfunction is something that I didn't quite grasp until I, until I started tracking on a really large scale here. Um, but the priority for me is to educate our athletes to make the best decisions for themselves and that they have to understand what birth control does and the different forms of it to know what is best for them. Because you're right, the medical field, the medical community, it's not their focus. Athletic performance is not their focus. And so 
you know, communicating with our athletes, what, what are the, what do you need from your birth control? How can we get that for you? But understanding at the end of the day, oral contraceptives do not regulate the menstrual cycle. They don't give it back to you. It suppresses it. So it it takes it away. And this is done through, you know, different strategies for every type of birth control. But a lot of times, you know, we hear about adolescent female athletes and their period so irregular, you know, they got it when they were 14 and they might not have it another, another time for six months, but that makes sense, right? Epigenetic experience to estrogen is not going to create a specifically regular cycle right at the beginning of puberty. And so, you know, beyond the difficult and, and at times rather detrimental side effects later in life, birth control masks all potential secondary amenorrhea symptoms as it causes a withdrawal bleed rather than a true period. And so we can't truly know if our athletes in secondary amenorrhea and then be able to help the amenorrhea and work through it and find a therapy to return a healthy menstrual cycle. Um, I think also birth control can perpetuate this idea, uh, you know, oral contraceptives specifically, this idea that periods are associated with these horrible side effects of high levels of hormones, because that is the landscape of a withdrawal bleed. But a withdrawal bleed is, is not a true period. And so understanding that, that the pill is not always the answer. At times it is, but at times it is not. And so if we're going to talk about secondary amenorrhea specifically, so the loss of a period and then, or just, you know, menstrual cycle dysfunction, it's so much more prevalent with our female athlete populations than we think it is, or even than we can see that it is because it is often masked by birth control or the questions aren't even asked. And there are some sport communities that wear this amenorrhea like a badge of honor. And I know that Martha, you and I have talked about the endurance sport community and specifically with young women um, and how we used to connect amenorrhea with a low body fat and a high training load. And those, you know, high training load and low body fat are things that are typically performance indicators are considered to be performance indicators of endurance sports, but that's not the case. And so we really need to understand that birth control does not regulate your cycle. It does not return your cycle. It fully suppresses it. And if you are on the pill, you don't have a healthy menstrual cycle. Again, that's not to say that it's not the answer as a therapy for many different situations, but in terms of secondary amenorrhea, it's not applicable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing I pull from this is just how important it is for women athletes to understand that their cycle and that cycle or regularity or irregularity is such a critical piece of feedback about, you know, how healthy you are as a, as a, as a person, as an athlete. And, you know, if, if, you, if that cycle is not regular, that, that is a red flag. That is another piece of feedback that we should be attuned to as female athletes in the same way as like our recovery patterns, heart rate, resting heart rate, all those sorts of things. It's another metric that should be, and maybe the most important one, it's such a critical piece of feedback. I would fully agree. And I think some of the most common feedback that I give to strength coaches when they're tracking numerous types of metrics, whether it's heart rate metrics or GPS metrics, is are you measuring cycle? Because cycle is going to have an impact on every wellness metric that we track. And until, if we're not tracking the cause, if we're not trying to identify what's happening to to 
affect these other parts of wellness, then we're really only getting a small portion of the picture. I just want female athletes to know that, you know, you're, if you're, if you're struggling with this, you're not alone. These aren't the most common models used these models that are appropriate for female athletes. It's, you know, we've all learned systems, myself included, you know, Sam and I, but we both have degrees in exercise science or, you know, more than one. And it's like, we didn't learn this stuff, right? We had to dig this information out on our own. I think that's a really, really common misconception too, is that, is that we're taught this, is that these, as women, we're pulled aside into a secret room when we decide we're going to be elite level athletes and we're explained these things. And so we have to take care of them on our own. But we get, I get the same reaction from female athletes versus male athletes or female coaches versus male coaches is that I had no idea. I'm like, don't worry. Don't beat yourself up. No one did, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, this isn't a common discussion. And so a lot of times, um, and, you know, Marcia, I know that we've talked about it, but I'll get these really emotional responses from these women who are, you know, either retired or at the tail end of their career of, of sometimes at times anger or sadness of why didn't my coach seek this out? Why wasn't I coached like this? What could have been my potential if, if this is the way that I was treated or, you know, even girls that drop out of sport. And so I do think that, that it's important for it to be on the docket to discuss. We have to start bringing these topics mainstream. And that's one of my biggest hugest points of gratitude for you is that the the awareness that you constantly bring to it it's so necessary and as you're educating coaches of the future they have to be aware of these things they have to start asking these questions male coaches and female coaches if you're going to work with female athletes if you know a female athlete and you're going to talk about sport with her these are things that you should be aware of and we have to keep pursuing and asking these questions And I think the more experiences that we hear from women athletes, the more understanding that we have of of how necessary it is to implement this type of work yesterday. Right. Totally. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And like, I think, you know, for you and I who have, we've opened up this door and we've been having this conversation with female athletes, individual athletes, with teams, with coaches for a while. And like, once you start having more of those with individual athletes who are going through that emotional experience of, like you say, anger, disappointment. I mean, it, it's, it's real and it's intense for female. Like think of all these female athletes who have invested incredible amounts of time and energy and effort, you know, to, to be their best at, at any given sport. And then to find out down the road, oh, I could have done this all really differently, you know, and they, it, it's like, it's a very emotional response. And then the other side is the athlete's whose health completely deteriorated. Those are pretty common too. You know, I mean, the athletes who have experienced stress fractures or fertility issues later in life, like the, like I said in the beginning, the, the short and long-term consequences are profound, but the conversation in most sport landscapes is just not being had. And so people can start to believe like, oh, there's not really anything going on here, but there is, we just have to open that door, welcome these conversations, help athletes, particularly young athletes, develop that self-awareness and that attunement and encourage that and talk about how important that is. Um, It's our responsibility. You know, if we are leading female athletes, this is, it's not extra credit. It is our responsibility to do this, to open up this conversation. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. It's not extra credit. It's a responsibility. And with that, I think 
um, you know, the emotional experiences and the emotional damage that can come along with being a woman athlete in a man's environment of sport can be really damaging. And it can be really hard to tell those stories. It can be even hard to acknowledge that those, that that's a story at all, right? I had one athlete who reached out to me through social media and she said, I'm so angry. I'm so angry that I'm, that I'm almost 30 and I'm trying so hard to string it together at the end of my career. And this is the first that I'm hearing about this. And it makes me think all these experiences are coming to mind that were so damaging towards my, you know, my self identity. And, and, um, and so those stories need to be told, but we have to communicate to these women that those are stories at all, that those are things that that wasn't okay. And that there is better available to them in the future. Yeah. Okay, to wrap up this segment, we're going to look at the application of all of this. And when we consider how this information is implemented or not implemented, we have to be aware that as humans, we struggle with change. It's hardwired in human psychology to prefer systems and habits that are familiar to us. And the reality is that draw toward what is familiar can also hold us back. And Sam, you and I have had many conversations discussing the reluctance toward change And we've discussed that this reluctance extends even to the athletes themselves because they're so familiar with those traditional models of training. And this process of adopting a different way of doing things can be incredibly psychologically challenging for athletes whose training habits are deeply ingrained. So knowing that change is not easy for people, we as coaches and leaders, we have to anticipate this resistance to change and plan for it. So Sam, lay out, let's lay out a few challenges to be anticipated so that folks can prepare. As you have implemented women-specific training design and for individual athletes and teams, what have been the most significant challenges that you've observed people face and how were those hurdles overcome? The biggest barrier that comes to mind is convincing or demonstrating to people in the competitive and elite sport landscape that it matters and that it needs to be done at all, right? So a lot of people would be really resistant to creating a woman-focused model because they don't necessarily see it as necessary. And I think that that comes from a refusal to acknowledge the inequity that has historically been present but is currently very much so present in competitive sport today. Because if we don't acknowledge the inequity, then we don't see a need to create anything different. Um, And that can be applied to many different landscapes. You know, a lot of the inequity that women face in sport is not necessarily intentional of the opposite gender um, or their non-woman peers. It's just the way that it's built. So the biggest barrier that we face is that sport wasn't built for us, right? It wasn't built by us. We weren't allowed to compete for hundreds of years. And, and, so, you know, we, it's not anyone's specific fault that it is where it is. However, we can acknowledge and understand the historical inequity and the inequity present in, in order to see the need for a change, an adjustment, a new model. Um, and so that's something that I think is our biggest barrier. I think the next thing that comes to mind is, is coaches and athletes who have already experienced great levels of success training within this traditional format it's a hard switch to get them to understand that the ceiling, the potential of accomplishment and performance for their athletes is much higher when we start creating and implementing these programs 
that are developed and derived of the woman. Um, and not to say that it's impossible, right? So some of the programs that I've worked with have been extremely successful programs. In fact, one of the biggest reasons I got hired at NC State is Tim Santoro, the women's soccer coach extremely successful coach, right? They've been to the Sweet 16 multiple times. Um, they've done very well, ranked in the top 25. They're a very successful program. And so for him to understand that their ceiling is higher when we bring in a practitioner like myself and we implement these strategies and that it's necessary for where the game needs to go and what his female athletes deserve, that's huge, right? So it's not to say that it's impossible, but even getting female athletes who have experienced success training in the traditional format, getting them to understand that we're not going hard for two weeks, going easy for two weeks. We're simply changing the target of our training. And we don't want to take away that, that tenacious attitude. We don't want to take away that, that, you know, non-negotiable work ethic. We just have to target it better. I think that that's another, um, that's another difficulty that we face. And then I think the third one, and, and we've talked about it a fair bit in the first episode is hiring. Um, we have to hire women in these decision-making, question-asking roles if we truly want to build up a woman-focused model within sport. Uh, I love it. Sam, it's, I mean, it's heartening to think about where we could go, you know, work like yours, people, the people around you supporting that work, more coaches adopting these new models. It's exciting to think about where we could go with that. I mean, I, I truly think that that the sky's the limit. And I, I do think that, that we can create this environment of sport, this world of sport for women and by women. And I think that the by women is often missed. And, and I do think that putting women into the top roles of sport is crucial to moving forward with this model. Awesome, Sam. Okay, well, up to this point, uh, our discussion has been geared toward how all of this looks for kind of athletes who are later in high school, collegiate level athletes, even pro level. So in our next segment, we're going to look at all of this through a youth and adolescent development lens, um, talking specifically about the unique challenges that female athletes face during puberty. So thanks, Sam, and, and we'll get started again next week.